Friends, we are in Genesis chapter 1. If you're new with us or just visiting, we're beginning a series this spring in which we're going to take a deep dive into Genesis chapters 1 through 4. So we're in no rush. We're not going anywhere fast. We're going to slow way down and, and really dig deep into such an important part of our Bibles. So I'm going to read for us from Genesis chapter 1, page 1 of your Bible, the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray together. God, creator, God, creator of heaven and earth who made everything we see and every person in this room and the air that we breathe Would you stoop down and attend to us this morning as we look up and try to make sense of you and sense of the world around us? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, when I look at these three, two verses, I see three points that we're gonna make this morning. I want us to understand that God creates without conflict. Number two, that God creates as trinity, And number three, God's creation anticipates new creation. So those are the three points. Those are the three things we're going to explore about our passage. And we're going to start with the first one, that God creates without conflict. Now, I want to tell you guys an old, old story. This is a story that is really old, and it's a story that Parents would have told their kids and their kids would have told their kids and their kids would have told their kids. And it was a way for a family and a generation to understand where we came from, how we got here, what we're supposed to be doing now that we're here. And the story goes something like this. In the beginning, before creation, before humanity, the world was without form and void and there was darkness over deep, deep water. Does that sound familiar so far to you? Until the waters were divided between salty water and fresh water, and fresh water was the god Apsu, and salty water was the god Tiamat, and together they had kids, and those kids became the lesser gods in the world, but there was trouble in the family. The kids rose up and killed their dad, so the mom rose up and killed most of her kids, which sounds like a weeknight at my house. But as the story goes, the rest of the kids keep fighting Tiamat until a champion arises, Marduk himself, and he's powerful enough to slay the god of the ocean, Tiamat, and all the army that followed her, And out of the body parts of those he defeated, he created humanity from them. Now, the story I'm telling you is Babylon's epic, Enuma Elisha. And you can find this online. You can read the story yourself. And the article that I found this in was telling us that it used to be thought that the Bible was the oldest origin story in the world, that Genesis 1 was apart from any other telling until we were able to uncover stories that were actually older than Genesis chapter 1. And secular scholars now believe that Genesis 1 is a cheap 
imitation of ancient Near East stories. Now, I just told you one, and you can hold that next to your Bible, and I think you can plainly see that these are two fundamentally different stories. Yeah, you got formless and void. Yeah, you got darkness. Yeah, you got no humanity. But that's about where we part ways, and these stories could not be more different from each other. Now, I actually don't have a problem saying that Babylon could have written their story first. That doesn't bother me as a believer. It doesn't bother me to say that when Moses and his contributors came together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he looked around and saw that a bunch of people were writing origin stories and his story takes some of the form of those stories because that's the Bible at its best. Taking what culture is already saying and then surprising us by subverting that story. Isn't that what Paul does on Mars Hill in Athens when he says, hey city, I see that y'all are religious. You got a bunch of idols to a bunch of different gods. I see you have one that you didn't even name yet. Let me tell you about that God that is unnamed. Can't Moses do that here? Hey, ancient Near East, I hear y'all are all about origin stories and where we came from and why we got here. You're very religious. Let me tell you about a time that was formless and void and darkness like your story. But then let me tell you what really happened. That's the Bible subverting our stories with the true story and it surprises us in the way it does that. Now, clearly, One thing that makes Genesis so different than the Babylonians, the Akkadians, the Hittites, the Greeks, telling of how we got here is that in this story, God creates without any conflict at all. There's no fight, there's no battle, there's no slaying of other gods. He builds without adversary. Now you remember the part of our Bibles, Nehemiah, where the people of Israel, they've gone into exile, then they're coming back, and Nehemiah is rallying the people together to rebuild Jerusalem that's been destroyed, and specifically her walls, so that she can be protected. But when he's doing that, and when the people are doing that, other peoples in the land are threatening them and saying, we're going to kill you when you least expect it. We're going to pounce on you while you're building, and we're going to destroy this thing. So what does Nehemiah have to do? He has to build the walls with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. I'm gonna build, but I'm gonna watch my back and protect myself and defend myself in case we get attacked while we're doing this. Do you see God doing that in Genesis chapter one? Do you see God watching his back in this story, wondering what other gods and goddesses are up to? Of course he's not. He is unopposed. He is architect without adversary. He's doing exactly what he wants according to his will. There's no opposition here. Now some have tried to find opposition here in and around verse two. So look at that closely. The earth was without form and void and darkness was hovering over the face of the deep. And some people have wondered, well, 
what exactly is going on here and how does it say God created the heavens and the earth but then all of a sudden we have this like clay-like watery substance that seems to exist and so some people have found conflict and chaos there's darkness and there's unformed things and they have built what has been called the gap theory or the reconstruction theory you may have heard of this this is in the Schofield reference study bible so that's what popularized this idea But it goes something like this. Basically, in verse one, God makes heaven and earth, including the angels and the angelic beings. And then between verse one and two, that is when Satan opposes God and he and all his angels make war with God and fall. And when Satan falls, the first earth is marred beyond its own repair. And it shows up in verse two as this chaotic place plunged into darkness. Now, that interpretation has two great advantages. Number one, it tells us exactly when and where Satan comes into the picture, right? Because if you don't have that, then all of a sudden we're gonna get to chapter three together and a serpent is gonna appear in the garden and we're gonna say, wait a minute, if God made everything good, how did Satan get here in the first place? And that points to a place where he could have. And then number two, you read verse two and it we just said that there was nothing there, but it sure sounds like something's there because there's water and there's this darkness and there's this unformed substance. So it kind of sounds like something is there. So that's two advantages to that interpretation. Let me give you two great disadvantages. Number one, which is insurmountable, to say that the devil fell and took his angels with him and the first creation was marred beyond its own repair is to introduce a story into the Bible that is not supported anywhere else in Scripture. There's not a single verse anywhere else in the entire Bible that makes that claim that is purely the imagination that has put that there, and that's a major exegetical no-no. You can't take an idea and read it into the silence between verses. You do that in my house and you're getting grounded. We don't do that, okay? We don't introduce stories. So it just, there's no support for this thing. And secondly, it does say that the earth is formless and void, that the spirit hovers over the deep waters. But that could also be a poetical way of saying there's nothing. It's a desert wasteland. So whether you say this is day one of creation and God first makes a lump of clay and then makes the earth, I'm okay with that, but you could also say that this is still saying there's nothing here, the spirit is here, and nothing's been created yet, and that's a perfectly valid interpretation too. But regardless of which one you take, we come back to the idea again and again that it is God alone without adversary or opposition creating at will in Genesis 1 which screams out against every other telling of the time. Everybody else, everybody who was living in the ancient Near East was saying that the spiritual world looks like the physical world sometimes feels like, unpredictable and in chaos and flux and unreliable. And then Genesis opens and God is the subject of the very first sentence and he's mentioned 35 times in the first chapter alone and not a single other God or goddess is named, referred to, or given any credit. God stands alone. 
That means something. The way the world began means something for us today. You and I are not cogs in an impersonal machine. You and I aren't victims of universal forces. You and I aren't the playthings of the gods. We are created and beloved guests in God's world that is held, sustained, and directed by him alone. If there's no opposition in the beginning, there can't be any ultimate opposition at the end If God is perfectly in control of our origins, then he is surely in control of the consummation. And it's no surprise that the Bible ends where it began, that history ends where it begins, and that is God unopposed doing exactly what he wants to do. That's how our Bibles read, because that's how the world reads. God creates without opposition. So God is alone and unopposed. But secondly, God creates as Trinity. He's alone, but wait a minute, verse 2b, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So you have God in verse 1, and you have the Spirit of God in verse 2. Is the Spirit of God distinct from God, God himself? And that only gets compounded in verse 26 when we're going to read God saying, let us make man in our image. And then that's referred to again in chapter 11 of Genesis at the Tower of Babel when God says, let us come down and confuse their language. We take the simplest reading to be the first acknowledgement of the Trinity. One God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is alone in Genesis chapter one, unopposed, and God is together in Genesis chapter one as one God in three persons. Clearly the Father is in the foreground, he's creating, but then you have the Holy Spirit who's presiding over all that God is creating, and then we get to our New Testaments, like we said, in places like John 1, Colossians 1, 1 Corinthians 8, that say that the Son is present too, that God is creating through and in with the Spirit and the Son together. So far from this idea that there was war in the beginning, this wicked conflict between the gods, which everyone else was talking about and ordering their lives around, a very different picture emerges from Genesis 1, and the picture is this, as Michael Horton puts it. Creation is the result of a free decision and activity of intra-Trinitarian love the product of an extravagant exchange of gift between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is the place where God's triune life reaches out ecstatically in openness to that which is other than God. Namely, you and me. Now, church, I understand I'm asking a lot to have you think about God's intra-Trinitarian fullness shared at creation's inception before your second cup of coffee. I realize this is a lot to ask, but I want you to look at verses one and two, God and God's spirit in himself as full of love and glory together, ready to share himself with the creature 
you. And that makes this a very different place to live. God's not fighting and hating and killing. He's loving and fellowshipping within himself. What you get invited to is not this conflict and this war. You get invited into a home, the universe that God has made. And that makes every difference in the world to how you think about this life and how you think about this world that we live in. Now, I have two kinds of friends who are not Christians. Actually, I have three. One of them would be a fake Christian, someone who says, Lord, Lord, but doesn't do what Jesus says. I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about the other two who would say, I am not a believer, and, and my two friends that would say that, they fall in two different camps, and I'm sure you could recognize your friends in this as well. Number one, you have the friend who flirts with atheism and agnosticism, that they are brutally honest that there, if, if there is no God, or if God is not knowable, then there cannot be any meaning in the universe, right? We evolve, we breed, we die, we disappear, and the universe moves on and forgets us. And that's a depressing person to have a beer with. But I'll tell you, I respect the honesty. If you don't have a God who's known and knowable, don't bring meaning up into this space. Be honest about it. You don't have meaning, and you're being real about that. So I respect that. But number two, you have those who want the warm and fuzzy feelings of peace and love and harmony in the universe. And they want all religions to be equally true at all times for everybody. Well, maybe not the Babylonian and ancient Near East ones, but the nice religions that play well together, they want those to be real and true. And that everything we do as human beings, anyone at any time, has real significance and meaning and purpose for us. And they are so sweet and sentimental, but it has no substance. There's nowhere to hang that stuff on. There's nothing real beyond it. And I just can't go with you there. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 is the only grounds for a meaningful world of mutual love and fellowship. Do you hear me, church? Genesis 1, 1 and 2 is the only grounds, the only possibility for us to dwell in this world together and for it to have meaning and for there to be relevance and joy in mutual love and fellowship. And I get that because God is love and fellowship in himself without us. And when he creates, he shares love and fellowship with us. If you're a visitor here this morning and you fell into the first two camps and, and, and you want to respectfully disagree, I owe you a cup of coffee. I want to hear it, okay? That's my open invitation. I want to hear and understand because I'm making the point this is the only way we can walk out of here with a purpose to our lives and an ethic to love each other because that's what God was doing before we got here. That's the grounds for our existence. So God creates without conflict, quite the opposite. He creates as Trinity. And then finally, God's creation anticipates new creation. When God creates the world, 
He already has it in his mind to save and redeem the world. Now, we made this point in our very first sermon because when we opened the series, we said, what was God doing before creation? And we bounced all over our Bibles and found 14 places that say that God exists and God was planning his redemption before he laid the first brick of the universe. He was already doing that. So you can go back and listen to that first sermon and I take that as the technical proof that when God creates, he has new creation in mind. But now I wanna give you the poetic proof that that is true. You know, our Bibles aren't textbooks. They don't read like textbooks. They're not organized like a systematic theology. You can find propositional truths in it, praise God. But it is a work of art and literature as well. There are types and foreshadows and nuances. And Moses is teaching us to read our Bible in a way that we see themes that carry through the rest of our Bibles. And that's how I wanna close. Because in verse two, when we translate that word spirit, spirit of God, that same Hebrew word is the word for wind. And that makes sense. Spirit, wind is the same word. The spirit blows as the wind, Jesus says. And so when commentators and scholars see God's spirit metaphorically with hovering over these waters of creation, they can't help but see other places where spirit, wind, water appear at new creation. I'm creating with the spirit over the waters but I'm showing you to look forward to the new creation that's happening with spirit and the waters. Think about Genesis chapter eight, when the flood has come and destroyed the worlds and God's wind comes and blows back the water so that he can make new creation, something new. Look ahead to Exodus 14 on the bank of the Red Sea when God appears for the people of Israel and he parts the waters so he can draw through them a brand new people for himself, the people of Israel. That's repeated 40 years later in Joshua chapter three when the Jordan River parts and God once again draws his people through the waters for new creation because now you have a new people and they exist in a new land, the land of Canaan that is promised to us forever. So that by the time we get to Matthew chapter three, which Galatians says is the fullness of time, the culmination of creation, Jesus himself, it shouldn't surprise us to find the water parting and Jesus emerging and the spirit descending. And that cues us in to say, God's doing something new. It's a new creation that's happening here. And so it is in Acts and us today in the baptismal waters and the filling of the Holy Spirit in our homes and in our churches that God is doing a new thing. Now curiously, As our Bibles come to a close, in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, I have never noticed this before this week. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Did y'all see that? The waters, the sea, the sea was no more. Now, Now, don't get anxious I'm not saying there won't be beaches in the new heavens and the new earth because Revelation talks about bodies of water. You're gonna be okay. I take that to mean by God's spirit, we will have passed through the waters again 
and once and for all as God's creation has given way to new creation and God has done this new and marvelous thing. God has all of that in his mind on page one of our Bibles. When the waters are there and the spirit is there and God is ready to do creation, he's ready to create, he already has new creation in his mind, it's as if he is saying to us when we finally get to read the last page of our Bible, I make all things and I make all things new. Let's pray together. Lord, God, creator of all things, maker of all things new, we worship you, honor you, celebrate you, rejoice in you, that you have welcomed us into this space of hospitality, mutual love and fellowship that any creature might reach out and know you and be known by you, loved, love you and be loved by you. What a beautiful life, what a beautiful space, what a beautiful God. Let us worship you, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen.